0: COVID-19 Research Roundtables,
1: a series of panel discussions hosted by Queen's University Belfast's Professor Emma Flynn. Panel five,
0: the health of the nation.
2: Hello, and welcome to this panel discussion from Queen's University Belfast on the impact of COVID-19 on our society. My name is Professor Emma Flynn and I'm the Pro Vice-Chancellor for Research and Enterprise here at Queen's. In this programme, we'll be looking at the effect of COVID-19 on the health of our nation, not just direct in terms of the effects of the disease itself, but also in terms of the broader impact on our health service, on how people are coping with other illnesses and in other hidden ways. Joining me to share their expertise is a panel of researchers and practitioners from within and beyond Queen's. We have Professor Mark Lawler, Dr. Tom Walker, Professor Mary Horgan, and Professor Richard Sullivan. Professor Mark Lawler is the Associate Pro Vice-Chancellor in the Faculty of Medicine, Health and Life Sciences here at Queen's. He's an international leader in cancer research and recently received the prestigious 2018 European Health Award. His research focuses on improving molecular understanding of cancer to improve patient care through precision medicine. As Associate Director of the Health Data Research, Wales, Northern Ireland and Scientific Director of DataCan, the UK health data research hub for cancer, he is leading health data research with particular relevance to cancer. Dr Tom Walker is a Senior Lecturer in Ethics in the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics here at Queen's University Belfast. His research has focused on the ethics of different public health interventions and how we make fair resource decisions when resources are scarce. He's also interested in intergenerational justice, with a focus on how younger people have obligations towards those who are in later stages of their life. Professor Mary Horgan is the President of the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland. She took up office as the 142nd president in October 2017 and is the first woman president of the college in its 360 years history. She's a consultant physician in infectious diseases and internal medicine, and she served as the dean of the University College Cork School of Medicine between 2013 and 2017. Mary is currently a member of the Irish Medicines Board and she chairs the National Advisory Committee on Human Medicine and she's the president of the Infectious Diseases Society of Ireland. Professor Richard Sullivan is Professor of Cancer and Global Health at King's College London. He's director of the Institute of Cancer Policy and co-director of the Conflict and Health Research Group. As well as holding a number of visiting chairs, Richard is an advisor to the World Health Organization, civil military advisor to save the children and a member of the National Cancer Grid of India. His research focuses on global cancer policy and planning, healthcare systems strengthening and particularly conflict ecosystems. Welcome to all of our panel. So um, thank you very much to all of you for joining me. Um, We're really interested in this absolutely interesting discussion about the impact of COVID on our health and our healthcare systems. And I'd like to start off by turning to Richard. So Richard, we're going to be talking about the indirect effects of COVID pandemic on our health and our healthcare system. Um, But I wonder whether or not you could... Talk about the direct effects from a kind of uh, global scale of this pandemic in terms of the number of cases and fatalities.
1: Thanks very much, Emma. Um, Let me start by saying that at the moment, the official figures for the number of cases for for COVID-19 stand at over 12 million um, as of today. And we're we're heading to around uh, half a million confirmed deaths um, from this particular virus. But I'm gonna caveat this by saying really around the world, we simply do not know what the true impact's been. I think one of the most interesting facts about this pandemic is it's really exposed the enormous deficits around the world in terms of testing and actual case finding. Um, We believe now from the data we've got in high income countries that we're looking at an infection fatality rate of around 0.4 to 0.5. That means every single individual who's exposed and infected with the virus the numbers of individuals that then die. And we're looking at around that figure. But the reality is when we're looking at the cases on a a country by country basis, there are very few countries around the world, mainly, of course, these are in high income countries that have very, very good statistics that we understand. First of all, the number of cases they have in their population. For example, in Germany, it's around 0.2% of their population have developed COVID-19. Um, But if you take other places like Brazil and India, for example, the true number of infections and the true number of deaths simply are not known. And that's for a variety of reasons. The first most important reason is there simply isn't enough testing going on in countries so that we understand the population that's been infected. And the second important issue here is in many countries, we simply don't have the vital statistics on death registration to understand how many people are actually succumbing to COVID-19. Um, So, for example, if you look at Lindia, a place we've been working at an awful lot, at the moment, they're they're looking at around um, one per 100,000 in terms of mortality figure for COVID-19. Now, we know that's not true. We know it's much higher than that. But the problem is finding reliable statistics to show this is very difficult. So that's where we are at the moment with the direct impact. Nearly all the good data comes from the most high income, well-developed countries, the Germans, the Swedens, the UKs. Even interesting enough in the USA, we believe they're undercounting both deaths and numbers of cases by about 30 to 40%. So that's the state we're looking at at the moment in terms of the direct impact.
2: Okay, so Mary, I mean, these are shocking statistics when we think about it, but you've also been reflecting on this from a personal level. And you've said from your in your career, which has been long and illustrious, you've never seen anything like this. And so so what do you mean by that?
3: So I've been an infectious disease physician uh, for since 1990 when I started training. And I suppose when you reflect on the last uh, two decades, You probably could have predicted that this was coming. We've had a number of epidemics rather than pandemics. Well, one of them was a pandemic with SARS um, and MERS, both of which are coronavirus, and then swine flu in 09 and 10, which did have a big impact. So having um, a brand new coronavirus causing this, I suppose shouldn't come as a surprise, I think. We live in a society where we think we've got control over everything. And all of a sudden, this comes on top of us. And having having taken, I suppose, between my academic role and my role in the College of Physicians, I'd stepped out of clinical practice um, f- for the most part for the past two years, but came back on the front line. And when I came back, I suppose what struck me and, it, it you know, having trained in, in the bad old days of the AIDS uh, pandemic, when there was doom and gloom is the um, inability to actually properly touch a patient. So you went into rooms where people were um, isolated or often they were in, in, if they were cohorted, um, you came in totally gowned up, you didn't touch the patient really. Um, All they could see were your eyes um, which is a hard part to um, for somebody to communicate, especially with older people. Um, and your inability to, while you're compassionate, compassion also includes the ability to touch and comfort patients and I, I think you know from a healthcare uh, frontline staff point of view there was fear amongst us um on the frontline we didn't know how many of us were going to get it uh, we saw the impact it had on thankfully the smaller number of people who ended up being hospitalized um certainly in the south of the country it was about 3000 um of the 25000 or so that were um I- I- infected so there was certainly uh, a fear in the beginning It was predictably unpredictable. We were learning literally on the ground as to how we um, dealt with people. And our images really were, before it came to Ireland and the UK, were the images of Italy and the, you know, trucks um, bringing uh, uh, bodies of those who unfortunately died, and, and really was fearful for patients, for the frontline staff, because we just didn't know how it was going to evolve. I think we're now in a much better place. We know more. Uh, we know more because we've learned from our patients.
2: Thank you very much. So Mark, I, we, we've heard a lot about um, the global effects and the effects of st- for staff and for families, but obviously there are also indirect effects of COVID in terms of, on other, health, um, of he- other health issues. So from your research in areas of, such as cancer, What do you think the impact has been of this pandemic?
0: Thanks, Emma. The impact has been really significant. Um, I started looking at this actually with Richard. We both wrote an opinion piece with Edward Vidoliak in the European Journal of Cancer where we highlighted what we thought the problem was, but it was very much anecdotal. But one of the things we decided to do quite early was to get data specifically in relation to the indirect effect of COVID on cancer care. And the results that we saw were quite frightening actually and we saw that if we looked at for example urgent referrals which is the way in which we catch cancer diagnosis early uh, we saw a drop in about 70 percent in urgent referrals in in hospital trusts across the united kingdom Uh, if we looked at cancer chemotherapy attendance so a measure of how treatment was going for patients who had cancer in the COVID era we found that that had dropped by approximately 40 percent So those two figures are really worrying. So that means 7 out of 10 and 4 out of 10 people are not getting what they should be getting. Um, And while we've, we've continued to do that, we've done it on weekly data, we are seeing some recovery, but that recovery is still only partial. So for the urgent referrals, we've got to about 45%. So we're still saying that. You know, four out of 10 people are still not getting urgently referred where they have a suspicion of cancer. And similarly, for um, recovery of the chemotherapy, it's still only a 30% drop. So, again, three out of 10 people are not actually getting the chemotherapy that they need to get. So, that's really worrying. We, we also then said, well, what, what effect is it actually having on excess mortality? So, how many more people with cancer potentially might die in the next year? And again we did modeling, we used that data that I mentioned to help to model and um, in quite an extensive study and we saw that probably, you know, best case scenario, we're probably talking about something between um seven and eighteen thousand deaths, excess deaths of people with cancer, but that could go up to thirty-five thousand. So it's something that we're really worried about and it really needs to, we really needed to respond and um, to the pandemic in relation to getting services back up and also dealing with the backlog, which I think is a significant challenge.
2: So what we're hearing about is a kind of, uh, uh, I mean, the big issue has been the impact on the resources that we have within our, a- our healthcare system, whether that's financial time, staff, space. And I suppose we're having to make some really difficult decisions within this particular space. So Tom, from, from a viewpoint of ethics, how do we um, balance up all these different demands to make
4: those really important decisions? So I think there's, there's kind of two levels to this. So one is the kind of immediate crisis that we saw in Italy, where the question is who's going to get the ventilator was the big question. Um, but actually, I think there's a couple of other things which are also important that sometimes get lost in the ethics issue. Uh, one is a question about how we've run the system in terms of how many, many ventilators we have. That's a question about how we resource a system, do we resource it just to deal with what we normally expect or do we just uh, resource it? So we've got a bit of slack in there. And I think one of the problems has been that we've tried to maximize the use of our resources in the past and those decisions haven't taken enough account of, as Mary said, something which is kind of predictable that something like this, not exactly this, but something like this might happen. Um, And so there's a question then I think when we think about resources in the longer term is how much room, how much excess capacity do we build? And that's both in terms of equipment, but also in terms of how many staff do we need? And I think there is a tendency in uh, resource allocation decisions to go for cost effectiveness. uh, You get the most out of the resources that you have, That works really well sometimes, but doesn't work well when something like this happens. So I think there's a a kind of step back question which which we should have thought about. Another to pick up on something that Mark said was there's a focus again, just deal with this problem. And we switch resources into that and don't think about what the knock-on effects are. And I think that we were all a bit guilty of that. And there were all the ethicists I know were all diving into questions about the immediate problem and not thinking about. Well, what else Uh, when people are encouraged not to go to their doctor, for example, early on? um, What are the knock on effects of that? And how do we get the balance between dealing with this immediate crisis and what are the other effects of that crisis? So I think in a sense, the ethics, getting the right questions, is actually the most important thing here. It's not just about this. What are the knock on effects? How did we get here in the first place?
2: So that um, joins very nicely to open up the, to a fuller discussion. How do we decide how to move forward? We, we, you know, we do have predictions of second waves. We do also need to get back to a new reality, new normal, whatever that means. So how do we now set the agenda of what we do next? And, and do people have sort of thoughts about how to move forward?
3: What I think we need to do, I mean, it was so uncertain in the beginning, and that was the experience on the front line, but also on the unanticipated consequences of what happened. We know a huge amount now, 120 days later, um, compared to what we did in the beginning. And I think we actually need to look at the data. I think we need to interrogate it because we're going to be living with this for a while. So address... What is the risk? Because it's not zero, but the risk varies and we need to risk stratify. We need to um, protect those who are most vulnerable. And that's not just the older people. It tended to be people who were marginalized in general um, and try to come up with a strategy of um, looking after those that are most at risk. Um, versus continuing um, the important work of the health service, which as, as Mark pointed out, is still there, uh, to see how we can support countries that are in a, a less good place than us. Um, uh, also learning the lessons that really worked with other countries uh, and how we uh, have a kind of an eagle eye view that's, that's really agile, seeing what works. Um, so I think it's really interrogating what, what we've learned from the first 120 days and looking at the data in different ways, um, everything from the ethical um, standpoint, what the global impact has and what has the, and, and Mark and I had this conversation at the very beginning, the impact was always going to be beyond health and the importance of a a cross sectoral um, approach to moving on from where we're we're at, because as doctors, we tend to be very conservative. um, And I think we need to bring in other uh, views of how to live with COVID because it isn't even post COVID. It's living with it until we get to a point that hopefully there'll be a vaccine uh, as opposed to individual treatments that only uh, rich countries can can afford. Mark, you wanted to say something.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things Mary has highlighted, I very much agree, the use of data and one of the things we're doing now in cancer is actually looking at that data in great detail and continuing to collect it so we can actually use it to mitigate and to help us as we we go through uh, the COVID pandemic and come out the other side. I think the other thing that worries me somewhat is that it's going to potentially accentuate the inequalities that we already have within our health services. Um, And that really worries me and we've already seen it in relation to some of the data in the UK and elsewhere, and I'm sure Richard will comment on this as well, and that worries me because it, it means that, you know, there is a danger that we focus you know, as we've already even touched on, you know, what's happening in the, the high income countries, uh, but also not focusing within those countries as to how we make sure that we don't actually widen the divide uh, through COVID and through our response to it. So I, I, I absolutely think that multi sectoral approach really has to be looked at and, and also looking at why, why are we seeing these inequalities? And the other thing I think is very important is going back to what we did before will not work. Um, And I think we all realized it in different ways. It's it's giving us advantages. For example, who would have thought that most of the consulting now that would be done in relation to patients would actually be done remotely and for the most part work very well. And the fact that we're doing this conference through Teams EO um, you know, is an example of that, and you know, in, in general, it works. So we really have to learn that you know, yesterday was not the right way to do it. Uh, we need to actually learn the lessons that, that COVID has unfortunately exposed within our health systems and, and unfortunately, within our actual uh, society, and, and use that to really drive a better healthcare system, a better societal approach in in the post-COVID era. So
2: I I think absolutely right. In some of the previous discussions that we've had in this series of podcasts, the issue of the pandemic, bringing to the fore inequalities that were already in existence, and exacerbating them has been a common theme in all these discussions. And absolutely, I think um, that's, that's where we are. So, so Richard, in terms of the global pos- uh, prospect, do you see that? And can are there lessons that we can learn from other countries about how we should be dealing with this moving forward and potentially in the future how we should be adapting to how we deal with these kind of outbreaks
1: so i do think we've reached a crossroads um we as mary said we've been expecting this for years um to say we didn't know this was coming was absolutely false um the problem is as we've already shown from something looking at something like the global health security index is there's been really very, very poor preparedness and I would argue very poor response by the majority of countries around the world. There are some exceptional responses around the world, but they are very dependent on their individual systems. If you take South Korea, for example, this is a highly securitized, militarized response to the pandemic. And indeed, the way they approached it and the way they did it would simply be, our view would be unacceptable in virtually any other country. But they've been sitting on the front line of a Cold War with North Korea for decades. And in a sense, their society was was adapted to that form of approach. Furthermore, for example, in China as well, it's been a very, very securitized approach. Then you look in the sort of more free democratic societies like Iceland, Sweden, Germany, all have taken very different approaches. I think, you know, Germany and Iceland have stood out as being masterclasses in the way that they've approached this in terms of testing, tracing, isolating, um, very good political leadership And, and not treating this. We constantly talk about this being, you know, the foundations on science. At the end of the day you know pandemics are national security threats and they're whole of society threats which go across borders we're not talking anymore about westphalian healthcare systems where we're all little magical islands this is true post westphalian healthcare, um and, and and countries that appreciate this really have managed to get ahead of the curve but i come back to what you know mark said and mary said about the what we need to do, we can't do things again the same way, but this is going to require some extraordinary brave honesty about just how bad the response was at every level. And let's be blunt, as clinicians, I don't think we covered ourselves in glory either. I think there's been a real tendency for clapping for the NHS, and that's great. You know, people have really stood up to the problem here. But we've also had our deficits within the healthcare systems in terms of fragmentation, fighting over access to PPE, hospitals which haven't had the right leadership and imploded. And it goes as well, I think what Tom was talking about, there's some fundamental issues here that we do have to grapple with that I think other countries have dealt with. And I'll give you an example here, Jordan. This has caused them for the first time to really look at how they're making triage and resuscitation decisions at hospital level. Which patients do they not resuscitate? Which ones do they give access to ITU, for example? And having an honest societal discussion about Access to healthcare and, and who we look after, and the trade offs between the needs of the many versus perhaps the needs of the few. So, I think there's some important principles and, and, and issues here that we have to illuminate. And it's going to make, I think, for some really uncomfortable discussions here about how we treat our individual patients, what do we mean by risk mitigation for the elderly and the vulnerable, and what sort of indirect consequences does that mean for the silent majority? Mark's talked about cancer, what about mental health? The morbidity impact on our health systems is going to be absolutely vast. And I think by any yardstick, the indirect impact of this pandemic is going to outstrip nearly in every country the direct impact.
2: So, Tom, there's a lot of ethical questions within that, even, you know, not just in our response to this, but in terms of how we manage it moving forward. And I think you're absolutely right, Richard. And as other people have said, this this issue bleeds into not just the healthcare system, but into the wider social qu- uh, questions of inequality. So, I mean, what can what can ethicists help us within this space? What can the philosophers tell us to do?
4: Well, I don't think they're very good at telling you to do anything, but um, <laughs> but I think that's actually the wrong way to think about it. I think it needs to be a more transparent discussion across lots of different levels. Um, and taking account, one of the things that struck me early on was kind of fear that people wouldn't comply with social distancing early on. There was that people won't do it, so we shouldn't, we shouldn't try and implement it until we actually have to. And in a sense, I think we were, Too pessimistic about how people might respond once they got good information, um, and they could, and that was communicated in a way which was clear. And I think it's that involving people at all levels of society, rather than thinking this is a technical problem that we can deal with within the health service or, or within the university, whatever. We need to involve a much broader range of people, and I think once we do that, that's what will help to drive the change that everyone's saying we need to do something different, not go back to what we were. And the easy option is to go back to what we were. I mean, there's always a danger that we slip back into those old habits because the systems haven't really changed. And as Richard said, there's a lot of difficult discussions to be had and and admitting where we made mistakes, which people don't like doing at any level. And so sometimes it's easy just to Brush it away. And I think to avoid that, we need to have a much, much a transparent discussion across all levels of society. And also perhaps look at how we can be more flexible in dealing with things. Um, sometimes systems are slow and sometimes that's a good thing. Uh, but in cases case like this, I think that kind of need for a kind of more flexible, more fast-moving system is something that we also need to think about when we're looking at where we go next. Can't go back to the old We've got to fill in lots of paperwork and everything takes months to do stuff we need to do it have a ways so we can react quicker and nip things in the bud earlier And i think that the country that done well did that much better than we did that flexibility is there
2: i think um i think that's absolutely key across our response on a number of different areas where we've been able to be agile and quick and realign with the needs we've seen really effective Um, interventions. Where we've been slower, that's where some of the problems have come up. So I'm going to ask, you know, throw it out to everybody else. What are your optimistic and pessimistic predictions as we move forward? I mean, do you have a best case scenario and a worst case scenario about what will happen?
0: Well, I sort of highlighted it in relation to cancer. I hope my worst case scenario is wrong. I hope I'm wrong. So here I'm a scientist saying, I hope I'm wrong. Um, but, and, and I think in order to, to, to be more optimistic and less pessimistic, we need to use the data to respond quickly. And um, I think one of the things we found was in the work that we did actually, we were actually able to see in real time what was happening. And that would make it much more easier to highlight that problem and then say, this is what we need to do. So for example, we have challenges in terms of, you know, what diseases do we prioritize in relation to cancer? Um, I'm really worried about, for example, bowel cancer because we have the challenge both in relation to bowel cancer screening, which is pretty much stopped, and then bowel cancer diagnosis and treatment. And so there, you know, are there certain cancers though? So using that data to say, here's where we should intervene. This is what we should do first, you know, and we should have a triage that actually allows us to do that and and decide where our resources should go. And so I'm slightly pessimistic in relation to, you know, what's happened so far but optimistic in terms of how we can actually move forward. But we have to use the data and we have to be agile. I I looked at the national data compared with our data, which was got directly from hospital trusts. And essentially we were about two months, two and a half months ahead in relation to what we were seeing. And that was critically important because you look at the national data, if it's two or three months old, you don't see the problem yet because it hasn't actually happened according to the data, even though we know it's happened. Whereas with our data, we were able to see here's the problem, and we highlighted it. We you know, pr- provided that data to the four chief Medical Officers, into SAGE, into the National Director for Cancer, so that then people could say, yeah, there's a problem here, so we need to deal with it. So I think that, as Mary had said earlier, the use of data and interrogating data, but also having data that actually is up to date and that allows us to respond to it is going to be critical as to how we move forward. But I, I can't overemphasize that we're all in this together so we need to really do it together as a, as a collaborative and as tom said bringing in different voices bringing in different opinions and um, in order to really deliver for our citizens
2: mary you wanted to respond i think
3: yeah i i think uh, i'm an optimist by nature what i think needs to happen is the narrative needs to uh, move from one of fear to one of uh, facing what the issue is, um, fear in the sense that you know, as I said before, doctors tend to be conservative, so we tend to um, see the individual as opposed to what the population benefit is. Um, fear uh, prevents people, as Mark outlined, from uh, attending really critical services. That's cancer, um, as well as, as cardiac services. And we've seen a big drop in, in, in um, access to those. And again, there will be evidence of excess deaths in that. So how does the narrative go from fear where what, you, what we're hearing um, is the number of deaths, the number of new cases, they have to be put in context. Um, so that the we can welcome people back into health services again, uh, reassure them in as much as we can. But again, looking at the data, where really was the impact um, of people in, in with COVID, but start having the impact of the non-COVID pathways in our health service highlighted, um, such as, as as Mark spoke about, so that people get the, 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 the message that, you know, we have more than just COVID to deal with. Of course, we need to deal with it. Um, but we have to take some risks um, in in providing services for um, a lot of, you know, younger people who will miss cancers in because we don't have screening programs at the moment um, or people. And I've seen it on the front line people coming much later with diseases that they should have normally would have presented either to their family practitioner or to the hospitals or to our clinics uh, because of fear. So I'm not too sure how to do that. But from a leadership level, we need to be changing that narrative.
2: So, Richard, what what are your predictions and and wishes and hopes moving forward?
1: Yes, I was smiling here because he's thinking, (laughs) what's he going to say that's going to be positive? (laughs) Um, So I I guess I'd like to look at this as as a welcome wake up call for everybody. you know when we talk about just something genuinely frightening, as Mary mentioned was MERS, and I remember working on MERS, which had a case fatality rate of thirty five percent and eighty percent of people ended up in ITU If you want to see frightening, come along to Goma and start dealing with Ebola patients i mean fortunately that 's now burnt itself out. There are some truly frightening disease out there in a sense, what we were lucky this time is because it started in a country, China, which actually gave us a reasonable head start in terms of information and intelligence. But it's also exposed the deficits in many countries in their own systems for biosurveillance. So I think, you know, when we're looking across the globe and we're talking about health system strengthening, we use these like words like water. We talk about universal health coverage and health systems strengthening. And then we all wander down to, you know, a local coffee shop and have a latte and don't do anything much about it. And the same systems which have stayed weak for 20 years are still weak and that has to change. So, in other words, the refocusing again on health as the most crucial aspect of development globally. The second thing to say is is this data sharing. I totally agree with Mark and Mary on this, and particularly Mark said about the data sharing problem. At the global level in terms of pandemics, though, we don't have a mechanism for doing this. Um, We've argued for years and years over the biological toxins and weapons convention around verification because we've always treated biology as a weapon threat. But the reality is, as this pandemic has shown, is we're talking really about natural threats. And interestingly enough, increasingly, people are getting very worried about the number of high containment BH4 level laboratories that are being built around the world, which contain some of the most dangerous pathogens. It is not beyond imagination to see a leakage from one of those one day. But this requires multilateral treaties that are above the politics. And you know, there's no one on this call or listening to this will will not be aware that this. this has been a brutally politicized pandemic. You know, the US has used this as an excuse for pulling out of WHO. Um, we've got a, a situation where you're either on the side of the US and you're anti-Chinese, or you're with the Chinese. It, it has been absolutely ridiculous how politicized this has been. Now we've got to get over that, and to get over that, you have to have enforced. Um, legislation and multilateral treaties, which allow for sharing of data across borders at incredibly rapid speed, the technology is there, the expertise in biointelligence and biosecurity is there. What you need is these supra-political protocols to allow the data sharing to occur, and we need to help other countries then actually develop health systems strengthening. And I think that's my positive message on this: is you know, health first. That's what we need: health first.
2: So there was a positive. You managed to be able to get one out. Well done. <laughs> what <laughs> about you. you, Tom?
4: Well, I think I mentioned earlier, I think my pessimistic side says people will try and just print it behind them, pretend it didn't happen. It was just a one off. You don't have to think about it anymore. That's my pessimistic view that that's the way that um, society might go, the politicians might take us that way. Um, I think being more optimistic, one thing I think we can be optimistic potentially about is that once people understand uh, and information is communicated to them generally, they are willing to make quite significant changes to their lives in order to help other people within society. I think there's a kind of something, a kind of solidarity or whatever that came out of this, which wasn't expected. And I think we can build on that. So my optimistic view would be that's part of the thing we should be building on, taking account of the extent to which it does look that we can have more uh, engagement, um, certainly in public health, work on public health ethics some of the time. There's this concern that people are too focused on themselves. They won't do things for the wider good. I think we can move away from that and be more positive, uh, positive about that. I think that's something we can build on. I think the other thing that we can be more positive about where potentially is to think of this more in a systems level rather than just about individuals. I think one of the places that have done it well, have focused on a system which isn't just the health system, uh, but the health is at the centre of it and there's lots of other parts of society and they all work together well. and thinking about those interconnections and strengthening them, I think that's something we can learn lessons from here, and that would lead to significant improvements in lots of different areas. So, I guess those are that would be my my optimistic side. so my pessimism says people will just say let's try and forget it it was just a one-off, and um, I think that's a real risk and something we do need to be careful about the forward.
2: So I suppose we've, we've talked about the integration of the system, uh, in su- I mean, I suppose from health and then outside, but also we need a better integrated system, don't we, within the health service? And I, um, in terms of the cancer, in terms of public health, in terms of commissioning, in terms of how we then do a joined up space within that. And I suppose, do we see differences in how we're approaching that between what we're seeing in the Republic of Ireland and in the UK?
3: Uh, where will I start? Um, the I, I guess we were a little bit ahead um, in in the um, south of Ireland with our introduction of restrictions, and I think we just kind of got on with it. Um, we were in time where we actually had no government. Um, But those that were left over before the transition did a good job. But I think that was one of the deficiencies within our country uh, when we did it. But saying that, I think we uh, did well. I suppose the big challenge, like everyone else, is getting out of the restrictions and the very cautious, risk-averse approach. Um, So on the one hand, we want to protect our population. On the other hand, we need to protect livelihoods. So it's lives and livelihoods, and how we can do that. Um, and I just to kind of pick up on a point that Richard had again, the importance of learning from others, uh, working with others so that we. Pick all the things that that were done not so well, but also pick all the things that were done well. We have this, um, I suppose, natural experiment going on where everything went from east to west and it's continuing to go west. Um, But there are, um, and, and it's hard to compare countries and we understand that, but there I think having a kind of, I don't know, pan-European way of really interacting and really sharing what worked well, and that's based on data, but it's it's based on relationships uh, and our ability to network. Um, which is very which is challenging to do when you aren't doing face-to-face. I think that face-to-face interaction is is lost a little bit when it comes to that, but I think it's absolutely key um, in, in relationships and really picking up on what uh, Richard said.
2: Mark, I think you wanted to respond.
0: Yeah, no, just to say, myself and Mary have talked to this and obviously COVID doesn't respect borders. So we've been looking at how we can work together, you know, across borders. And I think it's also opened up just more conversations about health across the island of Ireland and not just in relation to the response to COVID. So I think that's been a good thing. And also in relation to research, for example, Um, At the European level, one of the things we've actually started to do is try to bring together the different experiences. So the European Cancer Organization, which is a multidisciplinary cancer organization, and myself and Miriam Kruhl, who's from the Netherlands and who's um, from the European Society of Oncology Practice, we're uh, co-chairing a focus network specifically on COVID-19 and can- and cancer. But what we want to do is actually learn from people's experience. So we've about 30 different organizations who are all working together to try and collate data so we can see what, what does best practice look like? Uh, Richard highlighted some of the countries that have probably done better and then how can we share that and also what is worse practice like so we don't repeat the mistakes that we've made in the the past. So I think there's a lot of opportunities for that sort of shared learning approach um, and that that will then bring us to ways in which we can do things differently, bringing in the best of what we've done to respond to what has been a, a challenge that six months ago none of us even knew existed but in a way that actually really drives a much more focused, data-driven uh, collaborative that we're, we're all in this together. So therefore to get out of it, we need to work together to do that.
2: Richard, I think you wanted to say something.
1: Yes, you asked about the comparison with the UK, and I think the UK has been wonderful um, because it's been a, a masterclass in how not to do it. Um, at almost every level. What we've seen is this sort of downward pressure, of the pandemic, which first of all, has illuminated and exposed all the end-to-end cracks we've got in, you know, the social determinants of health, um, the failure of our, of our social care systems. And, you know, I don't need to remind people listening about the, the impact of care homes and the failure to protect those, all the way through to the fragmentation and the, and the under-resourcing that has occurred across the, the National Health Service. You know and this is unfortunately what you see when you you inject competition and choice into healthcare systems you fragment them into tiny little pieces all operating as their own independent little en- entities and when you have a situation where individual hospitals in in london and elsewhere are all fighting over the same ppe kit and trying to access different sources from different ways and you're in trouble frankly um, if you have a sort of supranational leadership, which, frankly, the n- rule number one in leadership in crises and emergencies, don't become a casualty of the emergency. Um, it really is. I, I, I mean, you just don't become a casualty of the emergency. So we lost weeks and weeks and weeks because we failed that primary rule there, and 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 so I guess you know, when you look at something like the UK and you look at the health system and you look at the command and control, the intelligence, the logistics, all those elements in the UK, you you can you can see where we got it wrong. And in terms of comparison, as Mark said, with other countries, you can see where they got it right. You know, and I hate to compare us against to the German. And I'm sure there'll be lots of English listening to this will be frothing at the mouth when I start comparing England to Germany. But, you know, there are particular areas where they were wildly ahead of the curve on this. So I think these, this important country comparison is going to be essential, but I, I don't believe the politicians are going to do this. So I'm afraid it is going to be the scholastic community, the policy community. They're going to have to do this sort of comparative research and illuminate the strengths, the deficits, the deficits and, the, and, the, and the weaknesses in all of this. Mm-hmm.
2: I think the issue is isn't just about um ha- who's dealt with it well and who's dealt with it badly but as you said earlier it's you know th- this this virus does not respect borders so if we do not join up, if we do not share data across borders, if we do not think about how we are doing it at a, at a regional level, which can be a regional level across a border, then it becomes ineffective. It doesn't matter what your policy is, because it may well be that um, it's not effective for that particular space. Um, I'd like to open it up to everybody and just to say, finally, are there any final thoughts that you may have about this?
0: Don't let cancer become the forgotten sea in the fight against COVID-19.
3: Mary? Um, What I I think is really important is the input of people outside health into the decisions that we make. Um, There are a lot of really, really smart people out there that look at the same problem in a totally different way and understand the unintended consequences of the decisions we made and the decisions we made at the time were right for the time. As I said, four months later, we've moved on and I would think that the input of economists and sociologists and business people um, is is cru- crucial to us getting on and making decisions that they're used to making, but in a different way um, I won't say discompassionate way, um, but in a different way. And my experience of dealing with people outside health has only um, been uh, an education for me, um, looking at the same problem, coming up with a solution uh, to to the benefit of, of society um, is to me an essential component of living with COVID for the foreseeable future and trying to get us back to some semblance of normality. Tom, do you
2: think that um, the, your final thoughts, do you think that the voice of the philosophers has now been raised, given what Mary said?
4: I think it's been raised. I'm not sure that it's been heard. Um, I, I think that's partly to do with the one of the things that I think we have to keep a, 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 an eye on is that in a crisis, people come together and we can pull people in quickly. Uh, but once that immediate pressure has, is over, everyone's got their own priorities, everyone goes back and does their own thing, and that those different voices disperse again. And I think that would be a mistake. So I think one of the things um, that I think we should be looking at is making sure all those different voices remain part of the discussion. So it's not just goes back to our own little silos, Um, even when the immediate pressure is off. I think that I guess that would be my final thought.
2: And Richard, I'll give the final word to you.
1: It's going to be very short. Um, There's a very nice book that a very important scholar of uh, American uh, African history. James Baldwin wrote called "The Fire Next Time." Um, basically, you know, I think this is a wake-up call for the world. Um, it really might be the fire next time. But one of the, one of the things he said in that book is very important: that those who say it can't be done are usually interrupted by those others doing it. Um, there are lots of people around the world and in our own backyard getting on with solutions actually doing things at all sorts of levels and and those are the voices we need to find and, and make heard actually over the over the next few years um, so that's what I've got to say thank you
2: Thank you very much. I suppose it's all about how disruption can be positive even in the most terrible of times and moving forward in a very positive way using evidence-based practice but also evidence from multiple sources. So from health, from philosophers, from economists, from social care to be able to, to come up with an integrated plan moving forward. It's been absolutely fascinating to hear from all of you today and I'd just like to thank you and all our listeners for joining us. So thank you very much. Thanks very much. Thank you.
1: For more in this series, subscribe to Queen's University Belfast Shaping a Better World podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Or for subtitled video versions, visit go.qub.ac.uk
0: slash roundtables.